0: And uh, when I was asked to be prior originally by Abbot Philip, who was our abbot at the time, uh, he was our abbot from, I guess you could say 1997 until 2011. Uh, So he asked me to serve as prior in 2004. And he said, it's important to begin on a good day. And uh, our lady has always provided a lot of protection for our monastery. And in fact, we have a special icon above the Pantocrater icon on the daesis, on the far wall of the sanctuary. Uh, and it shows Our Lady uh, holding Jesus and then also holding a veil. And this is a protective veil that she's holding over the monastery. Um, uh, there have been many dates in the mon- monastery's history that have fallen on Feasts of Our Lady, uh, where something suddenly has gone very much in her favor. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I think the only exception to that is Ascension Thursday, where uh, that that was another uh, miraculous intervention by the Lord, because it's hard to start a monastery, actually, Uh, especially De Novo. We didn't have uh, a monastery found us the way that would normally happen. So we've needed Our Lady's protection. And of course, uh, she brought us to this church, which is dedicated to the Immaculate Conception. Uh, You should know that uh, as oblates of the monastery of the Holy Cross, uh, you are affiliated with the Subiaco Cassinese congregation. And our constitutions actually say that the brothers should cultivate uh, a devotion to Our Lady. And it doesn't specify how. Um, we've done various things over the years. For a long time, we prayed this litany every Saturday afternoon together. Uh, that was when we were working on building the altar and building the choir. And so we asked our lady to watch over us there. We tried asking for St. Joseph's help, and it didn't work. So we, we put it back in the closet. <laughs> we had his icon on the wall. We decided, no, we'll go back to bring uh to your wife. Because <laughs> um, that, that seems to work better. Uh, the other thing I wanted to... The reason I wanted to do this as well... So, so first of all, it's important for you to know that... Uh, This is actually directed of us as monks that we have this devotion, that we've had a a very close personal connection with Mary throughout the history of our community. Um, But actually, it's my mother's birthday on Thursday, so I've always known when the assumption is, because uh, she was supposed to get a different name, actually. And then my grandmother's cousin, who was a Racine Dominican, when she heard that my mother was born on August 15th, she said, you have to name her Mary. And it turned out later we found out that she had been praying for months that my mother would be born on the 15th. (laughs) So anyway, that's why my mother's name is Mary. Um, But uh, what we see in the church's calendar, and uh, I didn't didn't manage to find a good stand for this, but perhaps at some point you can kind of take a look at this icon for the Assumption. Uh, And uh, I'll just, I'll set it here for now. I'm not going to discuss it, but I thought it would be good to have that icon with us. So in the old calendar, we are celebrating the Sundays after Pentecost. And that might sound, if we're not creative, or we're not, uh, we don't understand the church's liturgical theology, this moniker might sound just convenient, you know, Pentecost is the end of the Easter season, and then we have the Sundays after Pentecost. But in fact, the, the, the fact that we connect the Sundays after Pentecost to Pentecost is itself significant, because this is the growth of the church after the birth of the church on Pentecost. And what we see is the great harvest of souls, uh, and first of all, we get this great feast of the Assumption, or what in the East is called the Dormition of Our Lady, Her Falling Asleep. Uh, and then at the, uh, toward the end of this, we get uh, All Saints Day and All Souls Day. And All Saints Day, much of the symbolism that we get there, drawn from Revelation, but also drawn from Leviticus and other Old Testament texts, shows that it's the Harvest Feast. So the spiritual harvest is that of all the souls of all the saints. Uh, And again, as sort of the first fruits of this would be Our Lady, uh, the Queen of All Saints. All right, so I'm going to just talk a little more about Mariology today, and devotion to Our Lady. The assumption, as I suggested, is one idea of the first fruits of the resurrection and the ascension. And so many of the themes of the ascension show up again in the assumption and in this icon for example you have uh, Thomas was late all the other apostles were there when Mary fell asleep and uh, was assumed into heaven but Thomas was gone again just like at the resurrection Uh, and so he comes running back as Our Lady is being assumed into heaven the other connection is that on ascension Thursday We sing these antiphons that talk about the angels being amazed at the fact that a human body is seated at God's right hand. And so the angels, up until this point, had occupied a more exalted place than human beings. Uh, We being flesh, uh, we being able to die, all these sorts of things uh, meant that we occupied a lower place. But then we see human nature glorified and a human body ascending to God's right hand and the angels praise God for this the revelation of this mystery, uh, that human nature in its humility is destined for this greatness. And we have similar themes in this, the Feast of the Assumption that here we have uh, this young, well, at this point, she's not as young as she was, but she was this young woman in a town that we can't even locate archeologically anymore, Nazareth. And, uh, a humble person from a humble tribe and a subjugated people. And uh, she's chosen by God to be the mother of his son and uh, is preserved sinless from the time of her conception and then is assumed into heaven and is now uh, crowned the queen of the universe. Uh, It's an amazing thing to think about. And this is the fulfillment of human nature. This is what God intended for human nature all along what would have been given to Adam and Eve had they not sinned. And one of the things we see is some of the earliest references to Mary outside of the scriptures refer to her as the new Eve. So St. Paul refers to Christ as the new Adam, but Mary is the new Eve. Instead of listening to the serpent and and going against God's will, she listened to Gabriel and said yes to God's will. Okay? Okay. Uh, And this image of her listening and also reading, I don't know if you saw my blog post or read the program notes from Solemn Vespers for St. Anne, but uh, so many of the icons of St. Anne show her teaching Mary how to read. And uh, part of the idea here is, uh, first of all, on a human level, it's an encouragement to female literacy at the end of the Middle Ages, that this is uh, part of a mother's task is to teach her daughters how to read. And then they can pray the office and so on. And that's what we often see Mary doing, praying the office. And, uh, but it's also this image of contemplation, an image of learning, uh, an image of leisure. So uh, the, the place of women in the household is not just managing the household, but it's also learning, teaching and Uh, This ability to read means that Our Lady is attuned to God's revelation in the scriptures. And then when Gabriel approaches her, she recognizes to a certain extent what's going on, because there are lots of annunciation stories in the Old Testament. Uh, The other contemplative, or the second contemplative aspect, in addition to listening and, and hearing revelation through reading is trusting in God the Fiat or the Amen that Mary says? She asks first of all, "How can this be, right? How can it be uh, that I could be the mother of God's Son? I, I don't know a man. I'm not. Uh, she was betrothed to be married, but they weren't living together yet. Uh, and Gabriel explains about the Holy Spirit overshadowing her, and she makes an act of faith and consents to God's will. And so this is something that contemplatives must learn over and over to do Um, not that active religious don't do this as well but there's a particularly contemplative uh, way to receive God to consent to God without uh, doing anything uh, at first we might be called to two things later on but first we see God's action in our lives and then we're moved to consent to his action We also hear twice of Mary in Luke's gospel that she kept all of the things she heard about Jesus, all the things he did in her heart, and she pondered them. So she thought about the strange things that happened, like um, him disappearing in Jerusalem at Passover, and then asking questions of the the rabbis in the temple. Uh, She kept... She continued to ponder over these things. And one of uh, the beautiful things in church tradition is that John the evangelist uh, is thought to be the beloved disciple who's standing beneath the cross with Mary, who uh, receives her into his home after the crucifixion uh, because her only son is dead. And so as a uh, a widow who has no sons left, uh, she is in need of someone to look after her. And so it's the apostle John who does this. And then what happens is as they live together and he listens to her talk about her experiences, then he writes his gospel. And the, the gospel of John, of course, is, is the most mystical and contemplative of the four gospels. Uh, it's really theologically incredibly rich. You could spend an entire life meditating on it and not run out of material. Uh, And church tradition says that this has to do with Mary teaching John what she had pondered in her heart over many decades, thinking about her son. And then finally, again, uh, at the end of her life, she falls asleep and is assumed into heaven. Uh, Let me offer a few other interesting things about Mariology. Uh, why is it common to celebrate votive masses of Mary on Saturday? Does anyone know how that tradition got going, or at least how it's justified? Maybe it got going in some other way, but yeah. I have a question sure. before I try to answer this. Sure. It's associated with what they call the common of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um the, there is a special common that you pray on Saturday when you do the vote of mass. Uh, so, so it is connected. It is, mm-hmm. uh, the way I understand it mm-hmm. is that uh, the common of the Blessed Virgin Mary is um whatever you say, said celebrated mm-hmm. on days Saturdays when there is no feast of saint on the liturgical calendar. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yep. And so The question I have is why Saturday? What happened on Saturday in Holy Week? Anybody? So Jesus is in the tomb, right? And what's going on with the apostles? They're scared. (laughs) Um, They don't know what's going on. Uh, However, their fear, their doubt, their hiding away in all this is a product of uh, their imperfections, their sin. So there's one person who was alive at the time who didn't doubt, felt all the pain, uh, but stayed hopeful that God was going to vindicate Jesus and that was Mary. So Mary, uh, because she is without sin, is able to consent again uh, she's, it's been prophesied about her that a sword is going to pierce her heart. Now it's happening, uh, but she does not run away. She doesn't uh, try to uh, cover up the pain or, or uh, think that complain to God. How can this happen? Uh, but instead, her act of faith again is, is means that when we are in that position, when God seems far away, uh, we can turn to her and remember that she did not doubt through this time of God's sleeping, right? Um, God's rest on, the, on Saturday. Uh, so, she found resources in God. So this is the other thing. When, when uh, she asks, you know, how can this happen? Uh, because I don't know a man, uh, she finds resources in God. God always can do things, uh, more things than we can Um, it was funny Uh, we have our general chapter next year and this means all the superiors from all around the world will meet and we've got these study documents and several years ago we put together this document, there's a lot of concern about the fact that communities are fragile and they're small and and they need help and so on And um, so the widow Zarephath was brought up as an example of giving from our substance and uh, as I was pondering this I thought it's she did consent to give uh, the prophet Elijah grain and oil and water from her store, and she thought she was going to run out. Uh, but in fact, what, what she ended up giving him was what overflowed from God's prudence and God's abundance. God's providence is actually what I meant. And uh, so in our documents, we, we talk about this, how communities should try to help each other out of their substance. Uh, rather than just giving what's extra, right? So it's like the, the widow's might as well. But what we need to remember is that for that to work on a theological level, we have to believe in God's abundance. You know, we have, we have first trust that God will supply. And so if we're just sort of forced out of guilt or something to give out of our substance, we could injure ourselves, you know? Uh, but if we give freely because we know that God provides and we have a deep prayer life, uh, we we see the evidence of God stepping in and giving us abundance all the time. Then uh, we will be able to consent, and we'll know we'll be able to discern. You know, when is it really the case that we should give from our substance and help a community that's in need, and when do we have to just acknowledge that we can't help? Like that might be that that God God will have to provide from some other resources other than what what we have. How do we know? Well, we'll have to be men and women of prayer, will we not? To be able to discern that. Anyway, I say all this because we see in the Magnificat uh, this hint again of Mary at a very young age, Again, this is, she's probably 14, 15, somewhere in that area, she's a very young person. But she's absorbed the scriptures so well that she sees how God it's it's all about God and what he provides. It's not about us and what we do. It's about uh, how God raises up those of us who, who are not very important in the world's eyes. And it's not about us uh, trying to figure out ways to solve our own problems. We, we can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, God has many more resources than we have. <laughs> um, and... I remember somebody I talked to about fundraising once said, uh, yeah, God has all the money in the world, <laughs> which is true, right? So the question is, you know, how, how will God move the hearts of those who have uh, to share with those in need, right? Uh, it's not a question of us trying to figure out how to convince people how to help us. It's, it's, it's a bigger theological picture than that. And the Magnificat uh, is a great image of this. And it's really, uh, important that we pray this every night. By the way, I probably said this to some of you before, but it's good reminding ourselves. It's built into the architecture of our church. So the window in the choir loft is the visitation. And Mary is saying Magnificat Anima Mea, right? In the, in the ribbon. And uh, the sun shines through that window at Vespers because the sun's in the West here and its setting. And so when we're singing the Magnificat at Vespers, the sun's coming through that window. And it's like we're, we're just sort of entering into Mary's song, right? We're not doing it for ourselves, but we're, we're learning it. Uh, she was the first one to, to sing it under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so it's very beautiful to see the sun coming through that window in the evening and to think about that. Uh, okay, let's talk about the rosary a little bit. This is uh, a mark of devotion to Our Lady par excellence. And it's, I, I, I happily recommend it if it fits in your schedule. So just a few things. Uh, first of all, the, the traditional 15 mysteries uh, were events in her life. And again, what, what we're seeking in repeating the Hail Mary over and over again and, and uh, meditating on the mysteries of the rosary is we're asking her to teach us in a sense, just as she taught John the mysteries that he then goes on to write about in his gospel. Um, And so the two things I I stress when I I talk to uh, men in spiritual direction, the importance of having positive content in our prayer. And what I mean by that is uh, we do need silence in our prayer. And these days there's a lot of interest in Silent meditation, adoration before the Blessed Sacrament, and I heartily endorse that. But a lot of guys find then they get distracted, they they they, they get bored. You know, they're, they find themselves looking at their watch. It's like an hour; is a long time when there's nothing to do. Like I've said, hi to Jesus a few times, and there's like nothing going on. Well, you can you can cure that by having positive content in your prayer. And what I mean by that is listening to Revelation and thinking about all the things that God has done, thinking about all the things he's spoken to us about in the scriptures. So, the, so that's one thing. The second thing is, you know, allowing ourselves to be taught by the church's tradition. And Mary embodies this so well. So listening to her, like how did she experience the annunciation or the visitation? And what would she tell us about it? Like how would, how would we dispose ourselves to enter into that mystery with her? And, you know, the, the, not only the scriptures, but the liturgy. Here's another trick for you if you're praying the rosary. Uh, when, if you're going to meditate on the mystery of the Annunciation, take a look at your breviary and open to March 25th and read the texts that are in there. And then use that to help your meditation so that you connect back to the liturgy. But also then you're receiving the material that you're meditating on from the church And I'll talk more about the connection between Mary and the church in a little bit before we uh, finish today. Uh, So these two things, positive content and then listening to how the church has meditated on these things over uh, many centuries. So the rosary, uh, and you could do that at adoration, but the rosary is the place, again, where we really do this in a a very concentrated way. Meditating on each of these mysteries. Um, I think the... uh, the luminous mysteries are very beautiful too. They depart a little bit from the tradition of being events in Mary's life. Uh, we don't have evidence of her being say at the Transfiguration or at the Last Supper. Um, but she, she must have known they were going on at some level, right? <laughs> I don't think she was ignorant of the fact that the apostles were gathered together for Passover, even if she wasn't there. Um, and uh, she knew Jesus better than anyone else. So she knew what was going on in his life. And uh, again, maybe the fact that she wasn't there is, is a way that something we can share with her in, in these different situations. I was got to mention there's uh, the, the preaching of the kingdom of God is the third luminous mystery. So the other ones, we can usually find some liturgy, especially if we use epiphany for the baptism of Jesus. Um, The wedding at Cana is also Epiphany uh, in East and West. Preaching of the kingdom of God. Go to the common of apostles. You're talking about the commons. So the apostles, of course, are sent out to preach. And that's what the common of apostles is about. If you want texts to meditate on for the third luminous mystery. uh, Corpus Christi covers us for... uh, Transfiguration we've got in Corpus Christi covers us for the institution of the Eucharist. Um, And then for the the sorrowful mysteries, you can use... uh, the, uh, the texts for Holy Week and Tenebrae, right? Uh, anyway, I, I, for, for many years now, I wanted to write a book of uh, how to pray the rosary with the liturgy <laughs> because actually in about 1990 or so, um, then Cardinal Ratzinger and the, uh, the guys uh, in the congregation for the doctrine of the faith put out a big uh, teaching, uh, a document that talked about devotions how to understand devotions in the church and one of the things they said was all devotions should lead you back to the liturgy because the liturgy is what is where god reveals himself brings us into the the mystery of his life and the devotions are what we pray when we can't be at the liturgy but they should always lead us back to the liturgy and so the rosary is really a liturgical prayer you know uh, you, you know why there are 150 Hail Mary's and the traditional rosary. Yeah. The psalm. Number of psalms. That's so the number of psalms. Have letters here. Yep. Yep. Remember or pray them Yep. So in, in the Middle Ages, one of the one of the roots of this is that uh, when the uh, Cistercians would employ lay brothers to do the work uh, out in the fields, um, the lay brothers couldn't remember all the psalms, and they often weren't educated men, so they couldn't they didn't read. So they would pray 150 Hail Marys instead of the 150 Psalms. And then this got connected to the feast days of the year. And eventually um, Our Lady revealed to St. Dominic, the uh, that's, a, that's probably a legend, but uh, um, it's a good, good legend. Uh, she gave St. Dominic the rosary and instructed him on how to pray it, but it's, it's got that background. So it's connected to the liturgy. Um, Let's see, a few more things and then uh, we'll, we'll pray our litany and take some questions and, and call it a day. So a few titles of Mary that I think are, are worth thinking about. Seed of Wisdom. So on the, the statue that we have, and this is it's a, such a typical picture. You have Mary as queen of the universe seated on a throne, holding the Christ child in her lap. And uh, she, Uh, is the throne for wisdom, right? So wisdom himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, is is, uh, seated on her lap, and so she is the seat of wisdom. This connects, again, to contemplation, that uh, there's something about knowing Christ is the key to contemplation. And knowing Christ in his human nature is is important. Um, That Our Lady, again, has particular insight into that but she also knows that he is the son of God and therefore wisdom come down from heaven. Uh, The next uh, title of Mary, which is not in the litany, but it's a great one, uh, vanquisher of all heresies. You ever heard this title? (laughs) Um, Why would she be called that? Uh, She starts to receive this title after the council of Ephesus. So, the Council of Ephesus, uh, what was happening there is there was a patriarch in Constantinople by the name of Nestorius. And the people, the, the, the lay faithful, had a devotion to Our Lady and they were calling her Theotokos, which means uh, the God bearer. That's right? roughly equivalent to Mother of God in the West, but it has more of the sense of, of her giving birth, um, carrying God. Um, and Nestorius was a little nervous about this title because um, he felt God couldn't have a mother. <laughs> that, that seemed to m- be problematic to Nestorius. So he suggested that we use uh, the title uh, Christotokos. So the, the Christ bearer rather than the God bearer. So Theo is God, Theos, Christos is Christ. And there was a big controversy, and long story short, it's, and it is a really long story. If <laughs> you, you ever want to read about church politics, read about the Council of Ephesus. Um, Nestorius was deposed, and the church said, no, Mary is the mother of God, the Theotokos. And uh, this is a great mystery, because how can the eternal God, who is without beginning or end, have a mother? And it is a reflection on his entrance into human existence human the human uh reality god's humility uh the son of god's humility in in emptying himself of his divine prerogatives and sharing with us our humble human existence Uh, walking around getting hungry having to learn his abcs from his mother uh, having to learn a trade with his foster father um Hanging out with the apostles when they just couldn't get it, you know, (laughs) being patient with them. always amazes me how patient Jesus is with the apostles because they clearly, much of the time, didn't understand what he was teaching them. But he he very rarely criticizes them at all. Oftentimes, even when they make major mistakes, like arguing about who's the greatest doesn't say like, what's wrong with you people? He this uh, very calmly calls a child over and says, you know, uh, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like this child here. Uh, he, he is very gentle, very patient. He's a great example of what humanity ought to look like. And of course, his humanity is entirely given to him by his mother, right? So his human flesh is, if you want to look at it from the standpoint of DNA, they're a perfect match, <laughs> right? Um, in in the sense that uh, the virgin birth means that uh, his flesh was taken from Mary. So it's a very beautiful uh, reality that, that God, um, we say at the end of our litanies at the monastery, uh, for you are good and full of love for us, O God, and we give you glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This full of love for us um, in, uh, I, I you might be able to help us with this, but the, the concluding prayer at the end of litany and the Byzantine rite uh, says, uh, ends with, and you love mankind, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so beautiful. Do you, do you know the whole prayer? Uh, would you be able to no. repeat it? If you If you can't, don't worry. I don't want to put you on the spot. No. I, I know it's very similar to the one on the, um, uh, that you reset on the um, uh, second uh, CD you did. Yeah. It's almost identical. Like word words. Yeah. The yeah. Rejoicing in the fellowship of the Blessed Virgin Mary and of all the saints, etc etc etc, For you are good and full of love for us, and you love mankind. Are yeah, you, right. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I can't put the whole thing together in yeah. my mind. Uh, I should have looked it up ahead of time. But I, it's, I find it so moving because so, so many people have this image of God as being far away, you know, and being somewhat uninvolved, or we have to sort of. Convince him to take an interest in us. But actually, no, it's the other way around. He's already interested in us and loves us. And we just have to remind ourselves of that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. We have also, since you mentioned, we've mm-hmm. also taken uh, the term Mother of God mm-hmm. uh, completely out of everything and replaced it with the otaurus. Yeah, I, I so think so it's good. We've the past 10, 12 years yeah. It's it's a good uh, you know keeping it's kind of like uh, putting consubstantial back in the creed you know right. it's an, it's an, not a bad thing to put in hard words so that we ask questions right. about what why <laughs> you know um, and uh, so uh, so why is Mary the vanquisher of all heresies I I'm, I'm getting off from my notes here. Uh, most heresies uh, start because of confusion about who God is and how the incarnation works. So uh, Nestorius himself, um, by the way, Nestorius, there were lots of people who stayed with Nestorius. And if you ever read uh, the writings of Marco Polo, when he goes to uh, India, he finds Nestorian Christians there and, and in places like Persia um, and a number of these Nestorian Christians were reconciled to the Catholic Church during the pontificate of John Paul II. So we worked out, we finally, after 1600 years, worked out the theological problem of Nestorius. (laughs) But but the problem he had, as as it was understood by Orthodoxy and and the Catholic Church, uh, was that uh, he was squeamish about the idea that God could have a mother, and that uh, this he wanted to imply that the human nature and the divine nature of christ were kind of in parallel with each other but they didn't interpenetrate in any way uh, that uh, so mary was the mother of the christ portion of his human nature but not of his divine nature and the church has said no she's actually mother of his divine nature in some mysterious way not in the sense that the divine nature needs a beginning but in the sense that again god emptied himself of his prerogatives and loved mankind so much that he, he desired to share everything with us including our human birth uh, and so what we find is that uh, in the arian controversy there's a question about you know the origin of christ is he just a man is he divine uh, in later heresies about you know did christ have one will or two wills etc uh, these are all questions about how the incarnation works and the way we get beyond the problems is to meditate on Mary's contribution to salvation. Uh, and so when we honor the Blessed Virgin Mary, we open ourselves to seeing things from God's point of view. And we understand the Orthodox teachings of the church on the incarnation. Uh, so she has this exalted, uh, and now this, this gets some great treatment in the middle ages. You have pictures of her like, you know, doing battle literally with, with the devil. And um, it also, by the way, comes from this image of Eve, the Proto-Evangelion in uh, Genesis three, where God says, uh, you will, you know, your offspring will crush the head of the snake, right? The serpent. So Mary is often shown standing on a globe with a serpent under her feet, right? So she's crushing the head of the serpent as queen of the, of the universe. Um, but the, the theological way this works is that uh, Our Lady being central to the understanding of the incarnation helps us to understand who God is. That is how God reveals himself to us is through the incarnation, right, through Christ. There's only one mediator between us and God, and that's Christ and he's the son of Mary. <laughs> so uh, here's another one. This is one I discovered more recently and I just think it's so beautiful. Uh, Mary is the untire of knots. Have you ever heard of this one? Yeah, yeah. So anybody want to explain what that means? You want to give it a shot? Charlie? It's from Ireland, isn't it? I don't know where it got started. Uh, um, that would be interesting if it were, uh, because it's a, it's a culture where um, lineage and clan has remained strong, uh, whereas say uh, modernity has tended to weaken our sense of that anybody sort of know what knots we're talking about that are getting untied? I think there are various ideas, but as I understand it, and as I've heard others talk about it, original sin. Let's let's talk about original sin because Mary's role in the the breaking of original sin is really cru, uh, crucial. Um, so you know, I when I had these. Discussions with atheists many years ago. Um, one of the things they would complain about is the idea of original sin. Oh, you say all, you know, and people are bad, and this, this, and that. And it reminded me of this quip by Chesterton, uh, something the effect of like of all the things that you can doubt in the church's teaching. Like the last thing is original sin. All you have to do is open the paper, and you can see that we do all kinds of terrible things to each other. Uh, and uh, it's, it's just it's something we experience in ourselves. We, we want to uh, do the right thing, as Paul says in the seventh chapter of Romans, but we find ourselves unable to do it. What psychology has revealed to us, I think, modern psychology, though I think the church has known this in a different form, is that a lot of the hang-ups we have, a lot of the difficulties we have, come because of the, the difficulties our parents had in, in raising us. But we can't just blame our parents because the difficulties they had in raising us came from their parents, you know. And if you go, if you ever do genealogical work, you know, there's always, there's that uh, saying that, you know, be careful because you might find the horse thief in your family, right? Somewhere in our family, there's serious dysfunction, you know, it could be just at the level of our parents, but it could be at their parents and they bear it and then they pass it on to us. And it's not our grandparents' fault, because they had parents. It goes back in some mysterious way to Adam and Eve, like there's something broke in the human condition, and we can't fix it, like we're, we're stuck with it, we can try to cope with it and manage, but we can't fix the problem, uh, we're stuck, there are, there are these knots in our family history, and our lineage, and... Uh, our lady comes and gently unties them <laughs> because she did not partake of this sinfulness. She, uh, and if you look at her family tree, going back through Joachim and Anne, you see God preparing through many generations through uh, working to cleanse this, this family tree here so that there's this birth of this daughter who uh, is going to be the mother of his son. And in her saying yes to God, <laughs> original sin is broken and starts to unravel slowly. And so one of the things we can pray for, we pray for the souls of our parents, our grandparents, and others who have died. And when we talk about purgatory and and things like this in church tradition and church teaching, part of what we're talking about is the healing of all of those, all that brokenness that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And it's Mary who by saying yes, uh, by not sinning, by saying no to sin, uh, begins to unravel these things. And we can ask her help on this. She's, she's happy to intercede for us, uh, mm-hmm. to show us what humanity looks like. Uh, again, uh, we don't know a lot about what, what she did with her life. What we can say is that she had the life of a mother, uh, She lost a son uh, before she herself died, which is something we don't wish on any mothers. Um, She knew God intimately. And as I said at the beginning, uh, she was an expert contemplative. She prayed, she listened, she observed, she pondered, uh, she taught, she was taught. And all of these things show us the dignity of human beings in a way that a kind of activism uh, can is always at risk of missing. And in in this place of calm, in this place of trusting God, praising God for all of the things He does, and noticing them, uh, slowly we we come to see the reality about ourselves and. and why we might be inclined to act in ways that are counterproductive. And we realize, well, I don't have to do that, <laughs> you know? But when we're really busy and we're, we're under pressure and we're anxious and, and this, this, and that, and we're not, uh, we don't make time to pray, then we tend to react out of, uh, well, you know, we react out of our habits, you know? We got our habits, again, from our family upbringing and from our training and, and so on. So Mary allows us the, the, uh, the breathing space to say, "Ah, oh, I don't have to react. And in my opinion, if there's one thing we can do for our country right now, it's to become less reactive. <laughs> and to say, you know, <coughs> there are lots of things you can be upset about, but this, frankly, is nothing new in human history. <laughs> and what we want look to look around and find out is what has God doing? you know, there, there's lots of evidence that God is with us, that he loves us that he's taking care of us. And when we, you know, I, I wrote a thank you letter with about this and I, I should have kept the text because, uh, I, I, was somewhat inspired this day. Uh, you know, after there's a shooting, a mass shooting or something like this, I, on my Facebook feed, there are all these people saying thoughts and prayers aren't enough. We need to do something. And I keep thinking, uh, uh, well, maybe what we need to do is think, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe we haven't thought this out enough because we're so anxious because we're so, we feel pressured to do something, but how do we know that our first reaction to one of these scary things is going to be the right one? You know, have we prepared ourselves in such a way that we'll respond in a fully human way, or will we just respond out of nervousness and fear and uh, a feeling of inadequacy, um, and and not really responding out of uh, our relationship with God. Because as I said, again, the Magnificat teaches us that God has the resources that we lack. And so we need to bring God into the equation. I don't mean forcing people to pray or something like that. I mean, being men and women of peace, you know, followers of the Prince of Peace, followers of the Queen of Peace. Um, that, That will do so much more for our, our uh, national discussion than, you know, getting into those Facebook discussions and yelling at everybody, <laughs> um, which a lot of that goes out of my feed too. I have to have a, well, I don't, I wouldn't have to be mine, but uh, I opened this because, you know, Facebook invented a page for the monastery without telling us, <laughs> they just do this. They just start pages for every business. And uh, if we wanted to control the content on this page it had to be linked to a personal page. So I opened up a page. And of course, when you open up a Facebook page, everyone who's ever known you finds you, even if you've changed your name and entered the monastery. <laughs> and um, it's, it's quite interesting to see uh, what concerns people these days. Okay, so um, last of all, I want to say a bit about the connection between Mary and the church. So... There's this wonderful book, um, I think it's called The Metaphysics of Dante, Christian Moe's book, is that what it's called? Yeah, he, his claim in this book is that for Dante, and it's a very daring one, but I think he's right. And I think Dante's right too. Um, salvation in, for Dante is equivalent to us coming to know ourselves as God. So we actually participate in the divine life to such an extent that we identify, with God and God is all in all in us. Okay, so it's a very, very challenging idea. Now, we don't just sort of think about this and it happens. You know, there's a, the divine comedy is really long. There's a long road to get there. But when Dante has his uh, contemplative vision at the, at the top of paradise, he loses himself in God and he and God become one in a sense. But this is exactly what the incarnation is, that human nature and divine nature are linked together at an intimate level. And Nestorius, as we said, his idea of sort of parallel, divine and human, not quite meeting, but helping each other out, is too weak. Uh, And uh, what this means is that when we are reborn in baptism, we become part of Christ's body. That's what we say, right? Uh, And we should take this as at the strongest possible level. But this means if we're part of Christ's body, that Mary is our mother. Because as I said, she gave the human nature to Christ. And um, we are now somehow in a mysterious way folded into this human nature of Christ. We actually participate in his life. And part of the contemplative life, again, is learning to see this and and recognize it and and experience it in some way, that we are Christ's body in the world right now, right? We we, we say this when we say, you know, the Mass has ended, go forth. The idea is, you know, go forth and be Christ for other people because you're his body now, right? That's the idea. Uh, But this means that Mary is our mother. We also say that the church is our mother, Uh, And we see very clearly that the the theology of the church and the theology of Mary are uh, at at some level the same because they're both mothers. Uh, We emerge from the womb of the font as Christ emerged from the womb of Mary. And just as Christ is uh, in the world and is human nature, now we are uh, by virtue of Pentecost and baptism in the world as, as Christ's body. Uh, already as early as Irenaeus in the third century, the church is teaching that what can be said in particular about Mary can be said in general about the church and what can be said in general about the church can be said in particular about Mary. So the ecclesiology and Mariology are in some senses the same branch of theology. Um, And so Meditating on the life of Mary helps us to understand the church better. Uh, Meditating on the church will strengthen our devotion to Mary. Um, And actually I I didn't have time to work out what I was gonna say beyond that. So I'm gonna stop there. And I think what we'll do is let's pray this litany together in preparation for the assumption. And then uh, there'll be time for questions when we're finished. So I think you know how this works. Um, you just repeat after me until we get to the have mercy on us part. And then you just do the have mercy part. And then you do the pray for us part. And then when we get to Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world at the end, you do the responses there. And then, uh, well, let's just try it. We'll just do your best. And If you don't know how it goes, the people around you who do will help you out. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, hear us. Christ, graciously hear us. God, the Father of heaven, have mercy on us. God, the Son, redeemer of the world, God the Holy Ghost. Holy Trinity one God. On us. Holy Mary. Pray for us. Holy Mother of God. Pray for us. Holy Virgin of Virgins. Pray for us. Mother of Christ. Pray for us. Mother of Divine Grace. Pray for us. Mother most pure. Pray for us. Mother most chaste. Pray for us. Mother inviolate. Pray for us. Mother undefiled. Pray for us. Mother most amiable. Mother most admirable. Mother of good counsel. Mother of our Creator. Mother of our Savior. Virgin, most prudent. Virgin, most venerable. Virgin, most renowned. Virgin, most powerful. Virgin, most merciful. Virgin, most faithful. Mirror of justice. Seat of wisdom, pray for us. cause of our joy, pray for spiritual us. vessel, pray vessel for us. of honor, pray for us. singular vessel of devotion, pray for us. mystical rose, pray for us. tower of David, pray tower of ivory, pray for house of gold, pray for ark of the covenant, pray for us. gate of heaven, pray for us. morning star, pray for us. health of the sick, Pray for us. refuge of sinners, Pray for comforter us. of the afflicted, Pray for us. help of Christians, Pray for us. queen us. of angels, Pray queen for us. of patriarchs, Pray for us. queen azimel条fa- of prophets, queen Wij of apostles, darf- queen of martyrs, queen of confessors, queen of virgins, queen of all saints, queen conceived without original sin, Pray for us. Queen assumed into heaven. Pray for us. Queen of the most holy rosary. Pray for us. Queen of peace. Pray for us. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Spare us, O Lord. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Graciously hear us, O Lord. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Have mercy us. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God. That we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Grant, we beseech thee, O Lord, that we thy servants may enjoy perpetual health of mind and body, and by the glorious intercession of the blessed Virgin Mary, ever virgin, be delivered from present sorrow and enjoy eternal happiness, through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, enjoy your solemnity this week. So any, any questions about anything today or anything upcoming? Yes. What, what do we tell our, our Protestant friends when they say, well, Mary had other children it's in, in these Gospels? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, well, the first thing I would say is that it's a pretty early tradition that Mary had only one child. And so uh, there there isn't really anything in the tradition from the first, I don't know, 13 centuries or something that affirms that Mary had any other children. The the sons or the brothers of Jesus are usually explained either as his cousins, which is a common Hebrew way of talking about cousins, or as uh, children of Joseph from an earlier marriage. Um, That might not seem very... uh, conclusive to us rationalists in this era, but I would just say the testimony of the church is, is pretty unanimous on this. There, there really wasn't, um, e- even at a time when there wasn't a lot of devotion to Our Lady in the first centuries, there, wasn't a lot, a lot, there weren't church fathers saying like, yeah, Mary had lots of kids because it says in the scriptures. They always explained the brothers of Jesus as, as being uh, of a different mother when they did explain it. So, there's that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do um, Marian apparitions fit into this theology? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, one of the things I find interesting about Marian apparitions is that, um, first of all, we should note that because they are uh, special revelations, they are always sort of at the discretion of the individual believer to, to affirm. Although the church can always deny that they're authentic. But if the church says that they're authentic, they only bind the persons to whom she appeared. So she speaks to, and then the rest of us can learn from that, but we're not bound by anything that that she says. So one of the things I find interesting is that um, uh, the Feast of the Assumption, uh, again, there are no cults of relics of Mary, you know? So uh, already in the early centuries, the the church didn't celebrate, like there was no grave. Whereas there are graves for the apostles. You you can go to Peter and Paul's graves. Um, But I think this connects to the apparitions because it's also the case that uh, she enjoys a special place in terms of appearing to the faithful. And and that's because she's alive. (laughs) Her her body's already been been assumed into heaven. So uh, what we're seeing in these apparitions is is the full... uh, uh, foretaste of what human life will look like after the resurrection because mary already participates that in that in a way that the other saints don't uh and she and so because she's speaking to us from the end times that, that uh, she she sees she sees history as being completed already <laughs> whereas the rest of us are waiting for the resurrection of our bodies all the rest of the saints are are not fully themselves yet uh, only she and jesus have, uh enjoy this because only the two of them were sinless. Yeah. I, I don't follow Marian apparitions very much, so I can't really speak to the content of them very much. Though, I will say I've been to uh, the Basilica in uh, at Tepeyac a couple of times, and it's, it's very, very moving. And the stories about her uh, uh, intercession and protection of the, the Tilma, uh, so I've been pretty close to this and there have been lots of studies done of this. You know what this is? This is Juan Diego's, uh, he had this cloak made of plant. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of plant it was, but it's just made out of, you know, reeds. And uh, this image of Our Lady was imprinted on it. And that was uh, almost 400 years ago. And this, it's it's perfectly preserved. It's never decayed. Like it's, Uh, and several there have been several attempts to to sabotage it so somebody was hired to clean it back in the 30s i think or so 1930s and he was a a a german expert in maybe maybe it's a little later earlier so it's, it's not during the nazi period but but he was an expert on uh restoration of of artwork and so on so he was asked to clean up the tilma and and uh restore some parts of the image that had become dulled over time and uh, he was unbeknownst to those who asked him to do this he was uh, not a believer and so he was going to take acid to it and ruin it and when he got all set up and he was about to apply the acid uh, he saw our lady in full view like she she was there she was standing there and he he became so terrified by this that he ended up becoming a catholic (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, the other great story about it is somebody actually put a bomb underneath it and it blew up, and it actually knocked the church off of its foundations and mangled this this uh, um, the uh, various metallic supports that were holding up the framework for. Uh, the, the tilma for its veneration, but the tilma itself was not affected. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you can actually go there and see the church has been knocked off its foundation. They built a new basilica in the seventies, but the old one's still there. Yeah, it's, it's just leaning it's over here. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and the, the bomb was right next to uh, the, the image of our lady, and it didn't affect it. The other great story about bombs, by the way, is you know that uh, the uh, Americans uh, destroyed Monte Cassino at the end of World War II uh, because we thought that there were Germans hiding there. And so we gave the, the monks like a couple days notice to clear out of the monastery and the place was leveled. You can watch this on YouTube, it's very sad. A bomb fell directly on the, the grave of Saints Benedict and Scholastica and it didn't explode. <laughs> So the whole place was leveled, but the grave uh, was was not was not touched, even though a bomb fell right on it. So anyway, that's a long explanation, but um, so I I know a little more about Our Lady of Guadalupe than say Lourdes or or um, Medjugorje or any of those places. So or Fatima, Fatima's a big one. Good. Well, thank you so much.